praise and thank you this day for the gift of salvation, for the gift of grace, for lavishing upon us the riches of forgiveness and acceptance, adoption, freedom, and hope. And we ask you that all of these elements, aspects, pieces of the gospel of Jesus might be known more and more by us, proclaimed here and proclaimed beyond here to the ends of the earth through these gifts to the praise of your glorious name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please turn with me to Matthew's gospel. Chapter 14, and we're continuing to look at the life of Peter. This is Reformation Sunday, the Sunday before Reformation Day. And what a great example Peter is of what Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 as Paul sets out to unpack the gospel citing Habakkuk 2 verse 4, the righteous by his faith shall live. The just by his faith shall live. That's what we're seeing as we look at Peter. We're seeing the evolution of faith. We're seeing the development of faith. And we get a great picture of the development of faith in this particular passage, a passage that I'm pretty sure is pretty familiar to most of you. Matthew 14, beginning at verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, help us as we come to this, your word. Uh, Lord, we, we, we pretend that we're not, but in our heart of hearts, we know that we are. We're Peter. We're Peter. And so we need so much for you to help us uh, as we crawl into Peter's skin uh, and, and walk through these moments, these hours even, that Peter, in this particular passage, with the other disciples, walks through. So come, 
Come and help us, Lord. Come and help us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This, yeah, I know. I get that. I understand. I really do. So this, this is the Sunday before Reformation Day. It is, uh, it's a day to think um, about the significance of those who've gone before us. It's a, it's a day to remember. It's a day to give thanks. Um, and it's a day to learn. Um, and, you know, this is very timely. I mean, I really was struck by this this last week, that here we are on the Sunday before Reformation Day when when this really wonderful truth was sort of recovered or, or at least as I, as I prayed, the debris was sort of removed that had obscured it, this, this idea, uh, this, this wonderful idea that Martin Luther is, is credited with sort of recovering, that our relationship to God, our acceptance with God, our walking before God is not on the basis of anything that I do. Uh, this is the great thing. We, we say this sometimes here, and I stole this from somebody else. I don't know who I stole it from. All other religions are about what I do. Christianity is about what God has done. Right? And, and so it's not about what I do. Is there something for me to do? Of course there is. We're going to see that. But really, it is about Jesus Christ and what he has done and accomplished and finished and completed in my behalf, in my place for me, which I receive through the instrument of faith. And that's the Christian life from start to finish. That's the Christian life from start to finish. And, and again, what greater person to look at? Paul, of course, is the one who in Romans cites the passage in Habakkuk as he begins to unpack his, his understanding of the gospel and its application to the Roman Christians. We tend to associate this idea of justification with faith, or justification by faith, or salvation by grace, or salvation by faith with Paul, and that's, that's appropriate. It's well that we do that. But what greater person to take a look at when it comes to the development of faith, the growth of faith, then Peter. Peter gets more ink in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, in Galatians, in First and Second Peter. Paul gets, or Peter gets more ink than anybody else. It's surprising. And it really is a wonderful and helpful thing to watch faith develop over an extended period of time in the life of the Apostle Peter. And what we get, as one commentator pointed out in this passage, what we get here in this passage is a kind of a snapshot of what the whole of Peter's life looked like. It's a snapshot of the whole of Peter's life. The way life was lived for Peter, not just in this moment described in Matthew 14, but the way his life was lived as faith grew and as faith developed. So, I want to observe four things this morning. I'm making up for last week when I only gave you one point. Much to my wife's dismay. I want to give you four points, four observations, and the first of them is this. I want you to notice here the environment 
of faith, which is to say the environment in which faith grows. And then second, the object of faith, which will become obvious and should be obvious to us. And then the third is the persistence of faith. And then the fourth is the growth of faith. The environment of faith, the object of faith, the persistence of faith, and the growth of faith. So first, the environment of faith. What do I mean by this? Well, as I said, what what is the environment in which faith grows? What is the environment in which faith is exercised? What is the environment in which faith is employed? Maybe not exclusively, but to a pretty significant degree. When does faith go into hyperdrive? Maybe we should make an important distinction here before we answer that question. We're not talking here about the faith, quote-unquote. We're not talking about the content of the faith. Though there is a content to the faith, and it has everything to do with the exercise of faith, we're not talking about the content of faith here. We're talking about the exercise of faith. The faith is a cognitive thing. The exercise of faith is an interpersonal thing. It is a relational thing. We're talking here about trust. And what is the environment in which faith really goes to work, goes into hyperdrive? Where are the twelve? They're in a boat in the midst of the Sea of Galilee, and they are in the midst of a storm. They are rocking and rolling, my friends. The text tells us in these first verses, 22 and 23, that Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and to go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves. Where are the disciples, folks? They're in the midst of a storm. They're in the midst of a storm. It is evening. It is getting late. It is getting dark. Verse 24 says they're a long way from land. Verse 25 tells us that they're in the fourth watch of the night, which is between 3 and 6 a.m., And if you do the math, the simple math, they left when the sun was still up, let's say it's 6 p.m., something like that, maybe 5. They've been in this boat in the middle of the lake, leaning against the wind for nine hours. For nine hours. And they're being battered and tossed, and you got to figure they're afraid. What do you suppose was the emotional state of the Apostle Peter at this time? What do you suppose was his emotional condition? When our kids were young, we camped some. And we went camping one time at the Okefenokee Swamp Park. 
And on one particular morning, I loaded my whole family into a 12-foot canoe and paddled out into the swamp, five of us, with the water just a few inches below the gunnels. One sudden wrong turn, and we're gator bait. There are 14,000 alligators in the Okefenokee Swamp Park. There are copperheads in the Okefenokee Swamp Park. We saw one, probably six feet long, draped across some tree branches. I can't believe I was stupid enough to put my whole family in a canoe and paddle out into the Okefenokee Swamp. And every time I think of it, my heart gets Twitter-pated. My heart goes crazy. I'm thinking, what in the world were you thinking? And a park ranger actually sort of said that to me. He said, you know, it's illegal to put five people in one of these boats. Two of you are going to stay here. I'm going to take you back to get another canoe, paddle back to pick up the rest of your family, and the five of you will go in two boats. It was a polite way of saying, what were you thinking? What do you suppose Peter's emotional condition was in the midst of that storm? No sun, powerful winds. It was calm in the Okefenokee Swamp. But this is a storm, and these storms were sudden and fierce on the Sea of Galilee. There are, there are geological and topographical explanations for why that's the case. They would come on suddenly, they would be fierce, and they would be life-threatening. And here is Peter and James and John, together with their buddies, expert fishermen in the middle of this lake, and one of these storms comes up, and they can't make any progress. Now, you take that visual image, and you translate it into the stuff of life. Storms, life-threatening, powerful, fear-inducing storms. When does faith grow, folks? When does faith get exercise? When is faith tested, strengthened, enlarged? Just let me give you three passages. I'll I'll read them quickly. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We've been justified by faith by trust, by entrusting ourselves to another, not myself. And then in verse 3, the apostle says, more than that, more than rejoicing in these things, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance character and character hope, and hope does not disappoint. When is faith put to the test? Suffering. James chapter 1. You know, there's a... I know you understand what I'm saying when I say this. There's a part of me that hates these guys. Paul and James. 
telling me to count it all joy when I meet trials of various kinds. Because the testing of your faith produces steadfastness so that steadfastness might have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then Peter himself, Peter himself, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Three different writers, in one way or another, encouraging us that suffering and trial and difficulty and hardship and pain and storms have a refining, strengthening effect upon our faith. See, I just have to interrupt this at this point and just say this, this pastoral thing. So many times, people come to me and they say this, so many times people become discouraged about their faith because in the midst of a suffering, they wonder if they really believe. And the fact of their wondering, the fact of their doubting is actually an evidence of the fact that they do believe. And that what God is doing in the midst of this thing, as he did with Joseph, as he did with Job, as he did with the Apostle Paul, what he's doing is refining, purifying, cleansing, strengthening faith. You can read Philippians 4 verses 10 through 13 where the Apostle Paul says, I know what it is to be content in whatever circumstance I find myself. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I've learned, he says, the secret of being content. He didn't wake up one morning, take a drug, take a pill, go to a therapist, go see his pastor, have a counseling session, and come out of that with a faith that was over the top and on steroids. It happened over time. It happened over time. And where was he when he wrote that? You know where he was. He was in prison. He was in prison. And I said this just a few weeks ago, I think. He wasn't in a white-collar country club prison. He was in one of those dank, dark straw-filled, maybe, places. Not a pretty picture. And he says, I've learned the secret of being content in whatever circumstance I find myself. It's in the midst of storms. It's in adversity. It's in suffering. But what does faith need in the midst of the storms? What does faith need? This is what Peter's learning. This is what we're all learning. After all of these years as Christians, we're still learning this, aren't we? What does faith need in the midst of those storms? It needs an object, doesn't it? It needs an object worthy of itself. Faith needs an object that is worthy of trust. 
thinking about this last week. You know, how do you think about this? How do you think about faith? And here's, here's kind of what I'm, I think I'm concluding. I, I think I'm concluding that everybody really does have faith. Everybody has faith. And faith is kind of like a heat-seeking missile. Especially in the midst of storms. When you need a place of safety. We read Psalm 46 this morning because Martin Luther based his hymn, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. What is a refuge? It's a place of safety. In the midst of the storms, you're looking for refuge. You're looking for something to trust. You're looking for someone to trust. Everybody has faith. And it's like a heat-seeking missile. It's trying to lock on to something. And here's the bottom line, and we could talk about this for two or three hours, but I'll just deliver it and you can think about it. There really are not options, if I can use language as an illustration. There really are not options when it comes to faith latching on to something. There really are only alternatives. Options are many. Alternatives are two. And here are the two alternatives, folks. Self or Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, faith is going to lock on to one or the other. Some of you know the name Christopher Hitchens. He's one of the celebrated new atheists who just a couple of years ago died at age 62. I'm 62. There's a poignancy in that. Christopher Hitchens wrote this before he died. Faith is the surrender of the mind. It's the surrender of reason. Faith is our need to believe and to put all our faith and trust in someone or something that is exterior to me. Of all the supposed virtues, faith must be the most overrated. But see, sadly, it never seemed to occur to Christopher Hitchens that he did have faith. He had absolute faith. He had placed all of his trust in someone, in something, namely himself and his own capacities for interpreting and making sense of the reality in which he was embedded. Folks, you're a part of reality. And we say this periodically. I heard this some years ago from somebody. We're interpreters of reality. We are meaning makers. We cannot live in this world without trying to make sense of the world in which we live. And there are two voices that shout above the din of all of the other voices, crying for attention, crying for trust. The voice of self and the voice of the God of heaven and earth incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. And at the end of the day, I'm going to listen to one or the other of those two voices. Tragically, Christopher Hitchens thought that though 
deeply flawed and clearly finite. His ability to interpret and read the nature of reality was sufficient for him. He had faith. I can only hope that his brother who came to faith in Christ was somehow able to get with Christopher before he died and share that reality so that by God's grace, Christopher himself would have come to faith in Christ. Everybody has faith. It's like a heat-seeking missile looking for something to attach itself to. What is Peter thinking? What's going through his mind as he's in the midst of this storm, this situation that threatens him? Here's a really, really interesting thing. This is not the first time Peter has been in this situation. I never saw that before this last week. And you know what? This is even more remarkable. I didn't need a commentator to observe it for me. I found it out myself. This is not the first time he's been in this situation. If you go back a few chapters, six chapters to be exact, to Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27, Jesus has been doing what he does, preaching, teaching. He's fed the 5,000. They all get into the boat. They all head out onto the sea. They all cross the lake. And one of these storms comes up. And where is Jesus? He is with them, but he's asleep in the back of the boat. Boy, that'll preach, won't it? You ever feel like you're alone in the boat? When you get body slammed by the storms of life? Great lesson there, isn't it? Jesus, Jesus is with you. He may appear to be asleep, but he is with you. And so they rouse him from his slumber. I mean, it's a great passage in so many respects because it shows you both the real humanity of Jesus. Jesus, exhausted by his ministry labors. Jesus in the midst of a storm, sleeping like a baby. But when they rouse him from his slumber, what does he do? With a word, what does he do? Peace, be still. And the chaos of the storm ceases Immediately, if you go back and read that story, either in Matthew's gospel or in Mark's gospel, there's this striking verse. In Mark, it's verse 41, chapter 4. After Jesus speaks and stills the storm, the text says the disciples were filled with great fear. They had been afraid when they were in the storm. But when Jesus spoke and silenced that storm, a greater fear captured their hearts and their minds because they knew they were not in the presence of mere humanity. They were in the presence of the Lord of creation. And there's something about seas, folks, and water, and the turbulence on the Sea of Galilee, and how that's a reminder of the chaos of the original creation, and the waters that are chaotic and disordered, and the word that is there to bring out of those chaotic waters order, and beauty, and glory, and peace. 
I don't know if the apostles made that connection in their brains at that moment, but I got to figure at some point down the road they did. The Lord who was the Lord of the creation at the beginning and stilled the raging chaotic waters of creation, stilled the raging chaotic waters that threatened their very lives. And so here is Peter. Don't you love this? Here is Peter in a boat a second time. And the storm is raging and his life is being threatened. And here comes this phantasm of some kind, this this image of of a human being. They think that it's a ghost walking across the water in the direction of their little boat that's so threatened by this storm. And they're terrified and they cry out and wonderfully lovingly, so pastorally in the midst of the storm, what does Jesus say? Don't be afraid. It is I. It is I. And then Peter, and this is one of those, this is one of those existential moments, right? Like Soren Kierkegaard wrote about as he reflected on Abraham about to, about to slay his son with the knife hanging in midair. He, he imagines that moment and he sort of unpacks this, this Abrahamic story of faith. Try to create this moment in your minds. Here is Peter in the midst of the storm. His life is threatened. His self is threatened. His boat is not up to the task of keeping him safe. And here comes Jesus walking across the water. And where does faith go like a heat-seeking missile? This is beautiful. It goes in the direction of something worthy of its exercise. Peter says, Lord, if it's you, this boat is going down. If it is you, bid me come to you. Bid me come to you in the midst of the storm. And Jesus says, come. Folks, work with this thing. Work with it very practically in the midst of whatever your circumstances are, in the midst of the storm of your life, where your frail little boat seems so insecure and unstable, the little boat of your self, your self-reliance, Your ability. Peter's an expert fisherman. He knows this lake. He knows stuff. But stuff is out of control for him. And in the midst of it, faith, like a heat-seeking missile, is looking to latch onto something that is worthy of his faith. Oh, Jesus, if it's you, tell me to come and I'll come. Psalm 56, verse 3. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. What's the hardest thing for you to do when you're afraid? You got it. Trust. Especially something you can't see. 
When I am afraid, I will trust in you, in God whose word I trust, in God whose word I trust. Don't you love that Matthew 14 is the fulfillment of Psalm 56? This is Peter. In you, the word I will trust in the midst of this storm. In God whose word I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? You see what Peter does? In the midst of the storm, his faith locks on to an object that is worthy of his trust. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of creation, the Lord of glory. And you have to ask, what has Peter learned, right? Well, remember what he learned back in, math, in Luke chapter 5? He learned that Jesus knows stuff about him that he didn't know he knew. Jesus knows his life. And Jesus now, not just somebody who knows stuff that he didn't know he knew, but Jesus, somebody who has power over the whole of the creation, Peter's faith locks onto an object worthy of his trust. And here's where we go to to the third point. And I, I have to tell you, I'm so helped by one of my elders in this respect. Glenn and I had a little conversation about Peter before a meeting that we had this last Thursday night. And he said, you know, Peter takes a lot of shots. He takes a lot of hits. But at least he got out of the boat. And that's where I changed my third point from the failure of faith, which gave me the sermon title, What Happens When Faith Fails, Because It Will, to the persistence of faith. What does Peter do as he's going down? See, I mean, isn't this so important practically? At a day-to-day, moment-by-moment level, in the midst of the struggle? Isn't my inclination when I feel the weakness of my faith, when I feel that I'm going down, when I've done something stupid again that I know is displeasing to Christ? And let's not just think about those not respectable sins. Let's think about those respectable sins. I mean, on the way out here this morning, I get to 69th Street. The light is red. There's nobody on 69th Street. I'm thinking, why can't the county get its act together and get these lights to be green for me? Because I'm the most important person on this planet and I've got a place I've got to get to. And I'm sitting at this stupid red light with nobody on 69th Street. And you know what I'm doing in the midst of my frustration? Ultimately, I am complaining against the God of heaven and earth for the way that he is managing his universe. And that, my friends, is unbelief. It's unbelief. Right? I mean, does God say 
that as the Lord of the creation, in one way or another, he is ordering all things for the good and well-being of his people to the end that he and his son together be praised throughout all eternity. And that is inclusive of red lights at 69th Street. But what does Peter do? See, this is so helpful. What does Peter do as his eyes are distracted from their focus on Jesus, as faith begins to weaken, as he is drawn away from that childlike trust doing a thing that is unthinkable, unimaginable, actually getting out of a boat in the midst of a storm and walking on water, what does he do as he begins to go down? He keeps his eyes focused on Jesus. He persists in believing. Lord, Jesus, save me. Right? He persists in faith. Does faith falter? Absolutely. Does it fail completely? Absolutely not. He keeps his attention focused on Jesus. Folks, it's precisely when faith begins to falter, when faith begins to fail, that faith needs an adequate object. Right? I mean, isn't it clear? I don't need faith when things are copacetic. I don't need faith when we're just sort of tooling along and everything is the way it's supposed to be. I need faith in the midst of the storms. I need an object that is an adequate object, an object worthy of that faith in the midst of the storms. And I especially need an object that is worthy of my faith when faith begins to falter. When faith begins to falter, that is not the time to run away. That is the time to run to Jesus. And that's what Peter has begun to learn. He's begun to learn that no matter where he is, the object of his trust remains the same. And then finally, folks, this is how faith grows. Faith grows in the midst of storms. Faith grows when it latches on to an object that is worthy of itself, that is worthy of trust. Faith grows even when faith begins to falter, but is resolute in clinging to the only object worthy of itself. And that is Jesus. That's how faith grows. And you see the response of Jesus. This is so beautiful. Peter, as he begins to sink turns in the direction of Jesus and Jesus' response. Verse 31, Jesus' response is, Peter, you know the plans that I have for you? You moron. I'm going to entrust the gospel to you. Do you understand this? Get it together, dude. Get a grip. 
I've got a lot at stake here. Jesus' response is, verse 31, immediately to take Peter by the hand and lift him up. Immediately. He's already said, don't be afraid. I heard somebody say, I don't know if this is true. I haven't gone through the Bible to count it. But I heard somebody make the claim that the most oft-repeated command in the Scriptures is the command, do not be afraid. And do you know from whom that command comes? The God of heaven and earth. And Jesus has just said that. Don't be afraid. It is I. And as Peter begins to sink, immediately Jesus, who loves him, takes him by the hand and raises him up to safety and takes him back to the boat and yet again speaks a word and the storm is silent. And they're amazed. And they say what one could only say, truly, this is a paraphrase, truly, you are an object worthy of my trust. You are the Son of God. I don't know where you are entirely. I know where some of you are. I know some of the things that some of you are struggling with. I don't know entirely where you are, but I know there are storms. There are storms around you and there are storms in your soul. And there is one who stands before you in the midst of the storms. And as he said to Peter, he says to you, come, abandon yourself. Abandon your little lifeboat Get out of the boat and come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus said that. And he meant it. Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Lord, you know the folks in this room. You know where they are. You know where I am. And you know what we need. You know that we need grace deep in our souls. We need your work in our lives to encourage, to produce, to enlarge the faith that we need in order to come to you. And so that's my first prayer for me and for everybody here, that you'd give us the faith that we need. And then, Lord, would you give us the grace to exercise that faith and to come to you. And would you, in turn, take us by the hand? Would you speak peace into the chaos of our soul? And would you still the storms that we too might say, you really are an object worthy of our trust. Hear these prayers, Lord Jesus, we ask in your name.
Amen.